Let's uh, try it with a volume nearly up to six, Frank. Let's hear. What do you mean six? Just say anything to me. Okay? Just say anything to you about so? Is that about what you want? Mm -hmm. Just about there, huh? Can mm -hmm. you hear that now? Sure. Okay, how's that? No, we're just... Would you begin this tape, uh, Mr. Frank Barzaghi, by telling us a little about your background and how you got interested in the theater? Well, George, uh, we were a large family back in Salt Lake City, and um, like all youngsters, I suppose I was stage-struck and uh, just wanted to go on the stage. And it so happened that Willard Mack had a stock company there in Salt Lake City at the time, and I used to visit his shows as many times as I could financially. And um, finally, uh, uh, through the influence of my father, I got a job in Park City, Utah, working in the Silver King Mines as a mucker to get enough money so I could join some dramatic school and uh, eventually get on the stage. And uh, this happened, of course, and after about two months of the mine work, I came back to Salt Lake and joined a uh, school for acting there. And uh, they took me on the road with them. And we got as far as Salt Lake City, which is, I mean, um, uh, Ogden, Utah, which is about 30 miles from Salt Lake. We played two little towns there, Kaysville, Layton, and another one I can't remember at the moment. And... Uh, of course, in the meantime, the owner of the show borrowed what money I had, and I willingly gave it to him, thinking I was a big shot, you know. <laughs> and <laughs> and uh, when we got this, to Ogden, why, he said, well, kid, you better uh, go back home. Here's a dollar. That was the fare back. And, of course, uh, I was brokenhearted about it, and uh, I went back to Salt Lake City and went back to the mines again and uh, made another few hundred dollars, I mean, I mean a few uh, hundred, I mean a few, uh, maybe thirty dollars, which is quite a sum, when you uh, muck in the mine for two and a half uh, a night or a day, whichever your shift might be, and found, that found is the food you get, you know. And um, then I went back and uh, went with another show, went as far as Laramie, Wyoming, and went stranded there again, and worked in a a road camp after that as an assistant to a Chinese cook. Well, I made uh, $30 more there and went as far as Denver and um, finally got a job in a um, hotel apartment building as a, working in the kitchen as a cook's helper and did the, uh, the uh, work around the uh, garden there finally got, a, got on to Gilmore Brown, who was living at the Brown Palace Hotel, and there was an ad in the paper. They wanted a nice-appearing young man with some sort of background in the theater world. So I went up to see him without the appointment, and he said, um, have you any wardrobe? I said, well, uh, you're looking at it. And <laughs> so he said, well, uh, where can I call you? I, I gave him my number where I was working. And they called me, and I left and went to uh, went with them to Florence, Colorado, where we rehearsed uh, a lot of Shakespearean plays and modern plays and everything for the repertoire. And we finally 
Finally went on the road with it, toured all through Kansas and down through Texas and Colorado and all around. And uh, then I went uh, with him for two seasons and uh, finally went to, uh, we uh, did Hamlet uh, with five people working our way back uh, to Los Angeles. We got as far as uh, Phoenix, Arizona and uh, we closed the show there. And I went to Los Angeles and then liked the climate naturally, like everybody. I liked the movies, chance to get into this field. I worked extra at Universal on Gower Street before they moved out where they are now. And um, I did bits and uh, juveniles and uh, finally went out to see Thomas H. Entz out at the uh, ocean uh, site there on, um, I think it's now uh, Sunset Boulevard where it hits the ocean, and uh, applied for a job as a character man because I had done utilities on the stage and all that, and he said, well, he says, I'll start you off at, uh, I think he said $20 a week, I'm pretty sure that was the sum, and you're a leading man. I said, well, I've never been a leading man, I've always been a, paid a few juveniles, but mostly characters. Well, he says, you're a leading man for me. And of course, that flattered me very much. And I found out later the reason I became his leading man is because we looked alike, <laughs> which, <laughs> which amused me very much. However, I thought I made pretty good. I did all right as a leading man there. And then uh, later I uh, went on to Santa Barbara and uh, did some uh, two reels on the beauty brand, I think, the, the uh, American Film Company, and um, naturally didn't like that because I, everything was so overdone, so uh, unnecessary, I thought, and I tried to get out of my deal, and they said, well, we'll get you another director. Evidently, I, uh, I stood pretty good on the program as an actor, but I just couldn't stand the uh, type of stories I was doing and the type of acting I had to uh, portray because everything was so exaggerated. They finally said, well, who do you want? I said, well, Mr. Rince told me that someday he wanted me to direct for him. And uh, why not let me try to direct myself? He said, well, I don't know what kind of stories would you do? I said, it doesn't make any difference. Well, he said, tell you, we have some horses here. I said, what do you mean horses? Well, we have, say, a uh, couple of dozen horses. We're just feeding. How about making some Western pictures? <laughs> He says, can you ride? I said, sure, I can ride. I'm athletic. I can do part anything I want to do. Of course, he didn't know that the only horse I ever rode was back home. We had one horse, and I used to ride him bareback to feed to the water trough and had no saddle or bridle, just slap him to the water trough. But anyway, I had the chick, the, uh, chick uh, Morrison and um, Carl Morrison boys who were great uh, cowboys. And I told them of my situation and um, put myself in their hands, and of course, they taught me to bulldog steers and rope and everything. I became pretty fair. I mean, fair enough to get by on. And then uh, I started directing uh, and starring in two real westerns and then finally did a five real western. Did you cut your own films at this time, Frank? <laughs> oh, yes. You know, the funniest thing happened, or not funny, it wasn't funny to me then, but you know, uh, I shot about five or six thousand feet on my first two-reeler, and I had to get it down to length. I had to get it down to two thousand feet. 
So uh, I hadn't uh, covered myself with close-ups or angle shots, so I had an awful hard time getting this thing down to two reels. Well, that really uh, gave me a great lesson. It's the best lesson that's ever happened to me in my life. Since then, of course, I uh, cover myself in every way. I mean, when I make a film now, ever since then, I protect myself from almost every angle. So, I, as a matter of fact, I edit the thing as I shoot it. But in those days, you were working with, uh, right from the negative, weren't you, and with cotton gloves? Oh, yes. We, uh, as a matter of fact, uh, we never did see the print, and it came back till it came back from Chicago. Spoor's outfit there uh, did the printing, and we saw it for the first time in the theater. And uh, you asked me about uh, uh, cutting my film? Yes. Well, uh, naturally, we uh, had to get in the projection room there and cut with these uh, cotton gloves. And uh, it was a pretty uh, tough assignment for a, a youngster of my uh, age and uh, my lack of experience behind the camera. Tell us a little bit more about making films at that time, Frank. Did you go out on location much? Oh, yes. We, uh, for instance, if we had a cast of uh, maybe two or four people, that would require one automobile, another automobile for the camera and the, uh, and the reflectors, and uh, two cars would do the whole thing, and we'd go out on location, and that's, that is about how it happened. And now, of course, that same amount of people and equipment would look like the uh, Ringling Brothers Circus going on location. Did you uh, have to work over the scenes very much, or do they usually go pretty quickly? Uh, just what do you mean by that, George? Oh, take one take, or, or oh, as a rule, one take because it was uh, silent, and any uh, noises from the outside didn't interfere at all. And if they didn't get their lines right, uh, most people wouldn't know the difference anyway. We just ad-libbed it from the side, and we talked to the people from the back of the camera all the time. We'd tell them to move this way or that way, or tell them when to speak. It was a, it was a case of uh, almost a coach telling the players what to do. Mm -hmm. How about your scripts? Did you write any of those or collaborate on those at that time, Frank? Well, uh, yes. I collaborated on uh, most every script. I mean, uh, even the finished script that was given me, I mean, I would get with the author and uh, consult with him and uh, put in little ideas that I had here and there. and. Whether he agreed or not, I mean, uh, this thing was very healthy. Mm -hmm. Now, after uh, this period of production in here, you went oh, eventually to Triangle, didn't you? Yeah. Tell us a little about that, what the, how the stages were and what the general setup was. Well, the Triangle studio was a little bit of an improvement over the American film company because they had uh, a little more activity there. Mm -hmm. But they still had the glass stages and uh, a little more equipment as far as lighting was concerned, bigger prop apartment and so forth. Mm -hmm. Then while you were there, it seems to me that uh, you made a film with Texas Guinan called The Gun Woman. <laughs> Tell us a little about working with uh, Texas. Well, <laughs> made a picture called The Two Gun Woman, a western, and she played a sort of a gun mall. And, uh, we had about, uh, oh, it was a big five-reel picture. We had about eight or nine days to do it. And we were working day and night. And uh, our last day happened to be on location at the old Lynchville. They had a western set there. 
and uh, we'd finished working all day in the studio and then uh, had a quick uh, dinner and met out on location. Well, Texas Guinan was a little late, not much, a little late. And I said, well, uh, Tex, and I looked at her and she had her own hair. She didn't have the wig that she was wearing in the picture. She had her own hair. And I said, where's the wig, Tex? And she looked blank and she said, my wig, oh. And she turned to her maid and says, Mamie, my wig. And I says, yes, the wig, where is it, Tex? <laughs> she says, well, it's in the car. I says, it's in the car. I says, yes, go get it, Mamie, go get it, it's in the car. So I looked at her and I says, in the car. Uh, Mamie, of course, had gone off to the car. And I kept staring at uh, Tex and she, she says, it's in the car, Bird, it's in the car. I says, oh. Finally, the colored lady came back, three shades lighter, and she says, Miss Guinan, there ain't a hair in that car. <laughs> <laughs> well, of course, we had to wait two hours, and finally the wig came back, and we finished the thing around uh, 1 o'clock in the morning. Then I think there was an interesting little follow-up on that story, but when you were in New York, some years, years later, you went to one of Texas Guinan's nightclubs. Oh. oh, yes, a f friend of mine, Joe King, who was doing a play in New York, and I went to Texas Guinan's nightclub, the two of us, and there was the hip flash days, and we uh, just barely had two seats to squeeze into, and, and we were watching the show, and I think Ruby Keeler was in the show at the time, and uh, I ordered a bottle of White Rock and two glasses with ice. So we had our hip flash, so we had our drink, and we started to leave, and I asked for my check, check was, I think, $30, $28 or $30. So I called Tex over, and I said, Tex, how about this bill? She said, well, that's all right, Bert. I said, well, how about it? I said, look, I put you in a uh, part called a two-gun woman. I said, you're not using those guns on me, are you, Tex? Well, of course, she laughs and all right, Bert, this is on me. <laughs> about uh, during this triangle period, you made a film with Olive Thomas called Toton, and I think that you rather had the feeling that uh, this was the beginning of the Borzegi style. This is one of the first films that you've made that you came close to being satisfied with, wouldn't you say? Yes, I think so, George. I mean, uh, I liked it very much. I mean, I uh, liked the feel of the story, and uh, I think from that uh, I moved into a little different bracket. I think that might have been the cause, because directly from there I... Uh, signed up with Mr. Hurst and opened up the Cosmopolitan Studios with uh, Sistrum and uh, it was the, the uh, Harlem River Casino became the Cosmopolitan Studios there where I made Humoresque was my first picture. And there's a little story surrounding the how you came to make this, Frank. Tell it to us. Well, they were doing a lot of sophisticated stories back there. The Robert W. Chambers, they were doing one of those with... Uh, Bob Leonard, and, and they wanted me to uh, possibly select one of those. And I said, I don't like this type of thing. Uh, have you got any human interest stories? So Zettel, who was then the vice president of the outfit, said, well, I don't know. He said, here's a book called Humoresque. There's a lot of short stories in there. You might combine three or four of them and make a feature film out of them. He said, take it home and read it. So I took it home. I was living at the Algonquin. And the first story was humoresque. It was a short one, and there was other stories in there, like the Nth Commandment and a few others. Mm -hmm. And the um, first story I read was humoresque, and I knew that was it. So I called Francis Marion, who was my writer, 
And I said, Francis, I've got the story. And I said, I want, I want you to read it out loud to me. I had a reason for this. So she read it out loud, and she could, couldn't quite finish it. Her cords in her throat kind of welled up, and I said, that's the test. That's what I want. And I said, this is our story. Don't you think? She says, oh, yes. So that's how Humoresque was started. While you were filming Humoresque, you had to work in the basement of the studio. Yes, because they had uh, a big set uh, upstairs called the Ball of the Gods and uh, a lot of nudes flying all over the place. And uh, <laughs> this was one of those those things where that had to be uh, that or it wouldn't have any box office. And here I have this ghetto story, and uh, my set was uh, had low ceiling anyway, so I was satisfied to move down in the basement. But uh, every time I'd get worked up into a scene where the lights would go on, uh, the lights would go off, as a matter of fact. I had my lights on, and they'd push in the juice upstairs, and all my lights would go off, so I have to wait till I get through with these angels or whatever they had flying all over the air there. So uh, that's about... Uh, situation there. And you used to sometimes go down to the ghetto to look for types, didn't you? Tell us about that. Oh, yes. The first time I uh, started looking for locations, I dressed just like I normally would, and they looked at me, uh, and I heard one of these Jewish people say, there's a ganif, which means thief, and uh, so I decided that I would uh, uh, come down in old clothes. So this I did, and I spent about uh, three or four weeks just moving around, and getting my locations. As a matter of fact, I hid a camera in the back of a truck with just the lens sticking out, and I had the cameraman in there, and I'd be in there myself, and I would say, move down there and get this, and then move right over and get natural people trying on collars or hats or, or ties or whatever. And uh, I got the opening of my picture with about 500 feet of just these wonderful shots of these great uh, characters. And a good news... Uh Somebody commented about this uh, during the preview of the picture, did they not? Oh, yes. Uh, Mr. Hurst wanted me uh, to put in a scene like the Ball of the Gods that they had upstairs. When I was shooting the basement, he had this set upstairs. He said, Mr. Bizzaghi, if you'd put something like the Ball of the Gods in your picture, give it a lift. I said, Mr. Hurst, it doesn't belong in this type of picture. This is a picture about people of the ghetto. And he said, well, I still think it would help. I said, Mr. Hurst, wait till I finish this picture. And then if you feel that you need it, I will give you something like that. But in the meantime, I'm going to give you the same effect, and it won't cost you but 6 or $10. He said, I don't understand. I said, well, please wait until we finish. So we finished the picture and previewed it at the Ritz with the black tie audience. And uh, I was sitting with Mr. Hurst, and when these two characters came out on the screen, these wonderful Rembrandt characters that I had there, the Jewish characters that were so wonderful, the audience applauded, and I nudged Mr. Hurst, and I said, Mr. Hurst, there's your ball of the gods, and it cost you $6. What was the total cost of the film, Frank, and how did this compare with uh, normal production costs at the time? The total cost of Humoresque was 117000 and some odd cents. Uh, that same picture today... Well, of course, we hadn't a uh, big money cast, but that same picture today would cost possibly 500000 or more. Mm -hmm. Then when you were making Get Rich Quick Wallingford 
1921. I think you worked under unusual conditions in regard to your script. Oh, <laughs> well, <laughs> um, Luther Reed and myself tried to get a, a script out of this. He had written the script, and it, it didn't quite gel, and we were going to write it, rewrite it, and they said, look, you've got a uh, shooting date on this. Get with it. So I told Luther Reed, I said, let's, let's start shooting and let's shoot the, the stage play. And that's literally what we did. We shot the stage play, of course, with a little embellishment of the screen play that we had, but we used mostly this, the, uh, the stage play on this. Mm -hmm. Now, I believe uh, when you did the Triangle Productions, let me see, those were done in California, weren't they? And then when you went to Cosmopolitan, you went back to New York. That's right. Then uh, you began some more location work when you did uh, the Pride of Palomar. That took you where? And that took me to uh, uh, back here to California. California. Yes, and uh, Long Beach and uh, down towards San Diego. And I think the Valley of, of Silent Men sounds like a very interesting picture. And again, you went on location for that, I believe. Well, that, uh, that was quite a tour. We started this picture in uh, Banff, Canada, and then we went over to Lake Louise when it was out of season. We lived in the servant quarters in the hotel because it was closed, and we'd have to go to the glacier across the lake, which was about two or three miles up uh, uh, early in the morning before it would uh, thaw, and worked in the glacier there, and then we'd come back after uh, sundown, so that would be so we get through the lake again, and then after that we went to Temiskaming, Canada, uh, the other the eastern part, and the last scene in the picture was a situation where this barge was supposed to go over the waterfall, and it got caught on a little rock it seemed on the other side of the river. The river was about 125 feet wide, I would say, and it looked about 20 feet from the other side of the shore. And the two big Canadians and my prop man, who was a, a wonderful athlete and had been in the Navy, had uh, only been married about a month, was anxious to get home, and he insisted he could do it, so he went over with these two Canadians and they, uh, threw a rope on this thing, and he tied a rope around him, and hand over hand, he's tried to get to this barge, and uh, the water was so swift, we couldn't see it from where we were, that it pulled him down, and they tried to pull him ashore, and he went, they had given him a little rope, and it caught underneath a, some kind of a ro uh, rock underneath, and he, they tried to pull him out, and they, he snagged, and of course, that was it, and, uh, about an hour later, they got him out, and that was the end of that. That was a tragic finish for that picture, but that was the last scene of the thing. I left and had the second unit finish it. I think probably ever since then, Frank, you've had a kind of a peculiar feeling about working on location. And I believe you told me that when you came much later to a film called The Spanish Main, you achieved all those wonderfully realistic effects right in the studio, did you not? That's right. We. Um, we had uh, these terrific uh, Spanish ships, I mean, uh, huge things that were supposed to be out in the mid-ocean shooting at one another, and uh, uh, we built, we never left the studio. We built the whole thing in the studio, and uh, naturally your uh, special effects men, who are the unsung heroes of the industry, I think, 
they did the rest, and uh, when you saw this thing on the screen, you swear that you were out on the high, high ocean. There was even some question at the time of you making Seventh Heaven in Paris, wasn't there, Frank? Oh, yes. Uh, this the picture a little for it. Well, uh, Mr. Sheehan at the time said uh, that he gave me the assignment. He said, Mr. Bezegi, if you want to make this thing in Paris, he says, you can do it. I personally don't think you should, but he says, I want you to go to Paris, look it over, and if you still feel that you can do it there and can do it to your satisfaction, I want you to do it. Well, I went to Paris. I looked it over and certainly agreed with him. I came back and did the whole thing in Los Angeles. And you were working with two young new actors, Janet Gaynor and Charles Farrell, who later became stars as a result of this assignment. Can you tell us a little about the casting of them and the tests that went on and so forth, Frank? Well, uh, we had tested and looked for uh, the girl, the Dion character that Janet Gaynor finally played, and we kept searching, and uh, Mr. Sheehan finally said, well, I don't know that you know it, whether you know it or not, Frank, but I think your girl is right on the lot. And I says, who? He says, Janet Gaynor. I said, well, let's, let me see her. So I took a test of her, and I told Mr. Sheehan, before I even looked at the test, I said, this is the girl. And uh, we took a lot of tests of the boy, and Farrell just happened to be around, and took a test of him, naturally, he got it hands down. Then one day you were playing golf with a friend of yours named Dave Butler. <laughs> oh, this is Dave Butler. This is the kick. I mean, we used to live together. We... This goes way back to 19... Well, when I was with Mr. Rents back in the 19... 1916, uh, 17, something like that. And um, uh, Dave and I were playing golf, and I was casting the picture at the time, playing golf at, uh, at uh, one of these golf courses here. And uh, uh, he said, look, we've been pals for a long time. Why don't you, this is the way uh, Dave kids, you know. He said, why don't you ever do something for me? Oh, I said, Dave, I said, nothing in this for you. I said, well, I said, think a little bit. Well, you just keep thinking. So <laughs> by the time we got to the 18th hole, I said, Dave, I've been thinking. How would you look in a walrus mustache? He said, well, I look good. I said, no, I'm not kidding. I said, I've been thinking. You asked me to think, I'm thinking. How would you look in a walrus mustache? Well, he said, I'd, I'd look pretty good, I guess. I said, tell you what you do, Dave. Don't shave tonight and meet me tomorrow at the studio. And I want you to put on a walrus mustache. And I told him the character. He arrived at the studio and I said, Dave, I don't even have to make a test of you. You look perfect for this thing but I'm going to make a test of you because I want to please Mr. Sheehan. He said, all right. So we made the test, and of course we had to put another name on Dave's, uh, on the slate, because Mr. Sheehan, uh, for some unknown reason, didn't think Dave had, had it in him for this part, and we wanted to be sure we'd get him. We were pals and all that. And we gave him some French name. I forget the name now. And he said, hey, he said, that guy's great. What's his name? I said, I don't know. It was on the slate. Didn't you see it? He said, no, and I said, some darn French name I can't remember. He's a sign him. He's great. Then he found out later who it was. <laughs> <laughs> he certainly is wonderful in the film, too. Yeah. With a film called Lucky Star, Frank, you made your first 
uh, sound film, or rather, I should say, part dialogue. No, this Tell is... Tell us a little about this and Mike placement and those things. Well, this is really an experience. I had Gaynor and Farrell again, and we did the first half in silent, and then, of course, talkies came in, this uh, sound, and, of course, everybody was frightened, and they said, well, now, what are we going to do? We're half through it. They said, well, do the last half in sound. I said, God, I don't know. This is... Uh, so anyway, we uh, convinced ourselves we should do the last half in sound, and you should have seen the the gyrations that went on, where they felt inside, and the guys with the white gloves coming out and putting on the mics and everything. I said, "Oh, that's a lot of hogwash." I, I said, they had one fellow who was going to give Gaynor diction and so forth, and I said, "What is this?" And finally, she was trying. To, I said, "I finally asked." I said, "You're a nice guy, but you, you've been a stage director, so have I, and as a kid." But I said, "You just..." Uh, uh, move over on the side with you. are not going to destroy the nationalness of these kids. So we finished the picture like that. See, that, that was that was really quite an experience, that half-and-half half job. Then I think immediately after that, you made your first real all-talkie, which was they had to see Paris with Will Rogers. Oh, yes. And uh, he used to wander a bit on the set. Wander? <laughs> this, <laughs> I had the strangest experience with my, my uh, sound man. He said, look, I, I just can't get this man. I said, what do you mean? He said, well, I don't know where to put the mic. He says, you rehearse it, and he's here, and the next, when you take it, he's on the other side of the room. I says, look, Jack, I said, I don't know what you're going to do, but I'm not going to change Will Rogers' naturalness. Wherever he is, that's where the scene's going to be played. If I rehearse him, he's on this side of the room. If he's on the other side of the room and take it, that's still okay. Now, I said, you put microphones in his beard, if he has one, or this other guy's beard, or who's ever on the thing, put him behind pictures, put him under the sofa, put him every, any place you want, and just watch him, and then you play like you're playing in Oregon. You just tune him in. I said, that's the only thing I can tell you, and that's what we did, and of course, it turned out fine. After you began to make sound films, Frank, you made a, oh, a great long procession of them, and they run on the pages here in this notebook. And there are these, these titles are among the really golden names in the history of filmmaking. So without attempting to cover every single one, which would take us all night, I swear, let's spot check a little. And I think there was a rather unusual tribute that was paid to a film you made in 1934 called No Greater Glory, and this came from abroad. Oh, yes, yeah, a strange thing. It, uh, it was an indictment against war played through uh, children, just boys around uh, 10, 8, 14, and it got a citation from Mussolini. Oh, yeah. <laughs> In the silent days, you'd had a curious uh, experience with the script of Get Rich Quick Wallingford, and now, in 1937, you had another experience with a script on History is Made at Night. Tell us about that. Oh, gosh. We ad-libbed that one. Um, I was at Warner's, and uh, Walter Wayne, who's a very good friend of mine, he said, come over and do this History is Made at Night for me. I said, I like the title. I think I can get away. So I said, it'd be a relief, to, relief for me to get away from doing these uh, flirtation walks and doing the same story in three different academies. I'd like to take a crack at something different. So I got a relief release from the studio to do the one picture. So I went over to Waller and I said, let's go. Where's the story? He said, well, it's a good title, isn't it? And I said, it's a beautiful title. It's an intriguing title. Where's the story? He said, we've got two pages. I said, well, when are you going to shoot? He said, we're going to shoot uh, in about four weeks. And I said, you got four pages? He said, well, i got two now, but we'll 
two more is coming in. Well, I said, uh, let's get with it. So we started working on the story. We never did have the story. We started shooting in four weeks. We had page by page. And I said, Walter, uh, well, what started me shooting? I said, Walter, I've done this before, and it's no good. I won't. I made up my mind I'd never do it again. He said, look, he says, you haven't, you haven't got guts, huh? I said, if you've got enough guts to do it, I've got enough guts to go with you, because that's what I think of you. So we went on with the story. Now we get about... Uh, halfway through it, and that's as much as we have. I said, where's the rest? He says, coming in, coming in. We have a sophisticated uh, drama. And uh, suddenly, uh, about a week before we finish, we come up with a model ship. I said, now what are we going to do with this? He said, we're going to have a shipwreck at sea. So that's how the story finished, with a shipwreck at sea. Nobody knew we were going to have a shipwreck at sea until we got halfway through the story. So that's how history was made at night, and we were very fortunate it turned out all right. Frank, we're all anxious to see your latest picture, which is China Doll, made in this year of Grace, 1958. But I'd like to carry you back to the year 1932, when you made a film that stands as a classic, A Farewell to Arms. Can you discuss that a little for us? In which way, uh, George? Tell us how long it took to make, and I tell us a little about Helen Hayes to begin with. Well? And I'd like to have you remark on the acting of Gary Cooper in this, too. Well, of course, there is no finer or greater actress than Helen Hayes. That goes without saying. We all know that. Uh, Cooper, uh, uh, I would say, is a natural. He, he's not, I wouldn't call him an actor. I'd call him a personality. I think he's smart enough not to try and act because it comes out as good acting anyway. For instance, I had a scene in the end of Farewell to Arms uh, that I wouldn't ask uh, Barrymore if he were alive or anybody. I wouldn't ask uh, uh, a real fine actor that claims he's a fine actor to do it because he says this is impossible. I can't do this scene. The scene was uh, after he rose up the uh, Como Lakes to his uh, wife, who has uh, just had this baby, and the baby's dead, and she's about to die, and the doctor tells him to go down and have a cup of coffee and uh, come back later. Well, he's pretty well torn from every angle, and he goes to uh, the coffee shop, and there's a lot of people in there um, drinking coffee, and everything, but he doesn't see anybody. He's alone, he thinks, and he starts uh, dunking his uh, brioche and his coffee, and while he's doing it, he sort of has a scene where he kind of prays to himself, prays to God to not let, you took the kid, he forgives God for taking the kid, but don't let, don't let his wife die, don't let her die. And as he does it, he kind of raises his voice and he realizes that he's, he's uh, in with a lot of other people there and he gets embarrassed and leaves. Now, I asked Gary, I said, now Gary, what do you think? He said, oh, this scene, I don't know how to play this, this is impossible. I said, Gary, this isn't impossible at all. This is the easiest scene in the script. Of course, I'm lying in my teeth. I couldn't uh, lie more than this, but I, I said, uh, Gary, I said, there's nothing to this scene. All you have to do is just think. Think what this girl has meant to you. Think of, of everything in the past, of your relationship with her. Think of uh, deserting the army, the whole thing. And this girl, you've lost the baby. Now she is dying. Think what she means to you. And all you have to do is just think a prayer. You don't have to worry about how you're going to say it. You're just saying, just thinking, asking God to give you a little hand, just to, and forgive him for this kid, that's all right, but for God's sake, 
don't let this girl die. And if you do it, I said, do it just that way. And I said, I think enough of this scene now. Let's take it. I turned over. I said, turn the camera. I said, go ahead. And I said, go ahead, Gary. I said, what? I said, go ahead. Think it now. Think what? And he started to think. He did the scene. It was so good that I couldn't have boy. didn't have voice to cut. I finally reached over and tapped the cameraman's hand. He stopped the camera. I said, Gary, just right. I said, I'm going to take it once more because there may be a hair or something in the lens, or you know, and it's too good a scene to take a chance on. You're ready, let's go quick. And we took it before he could take a breath. And I said, that's fine. Now print the first one and hold that second. And that was the scene. And when we previewed the picture, Leslie Howard was sitting with me. And he said, that was Helen Hayes' picture, the let scene. He said, that's the greatest scene I've ever seen. And he said, you know, I could never play that. Many of us felt that your name was absent from the screen for too long, Frank. But you hadn't really retired, had you? No, not really. But uh, uh, there was quite a spell there where all it seemed that the industry wanted were the psychological dramas and the gangster pictures that uh, I don't really like and don't believe in. So I would turn down one script after another and finally start playing golf, and you know how time flies when you play golf. It just goes from day to day, week to week, and first thing you know, it was six years, seven years. And I said, what am I doing here? I had a story called China Doll, and I figured I'd better get on the board, so um, I finally got that uh, lined up and, and um, just finished it. It'll be released in May. It's a good uh, human story. It's a love story. It has a tragic finish, but... Uh, the audience liked it when I previewed it. I personally like it, and I hope it goes, and maybe a lot of them won't, but uh, I think it's it's my kind of picture. It's got warmth. It's got, uh, it's got a very nice love story. And, uh, well, that's about it. When you say my kind of picture, Frank, you remind us that the Borzegi pictures through the years have all belonged to a great, warm-hearted, and generous family. They resemble each other in that respect. Can you tell us a little bit more about the kind of picture that you aspire to make and that you do almost always achieve? Well, uh, I thank you, first of all, for complimenting me so, complimenting me so nicely. I, I, uh, I guess it's the type of thing that I have done in the past. Uh, human interest stories and uh, Stories about people, uh, stories uh, that are not so much of a downbeat, stories with a lift. And of course, once in a while, if you have a story with a downbeat, there is some something in that story that is, is uh, rather good, you know, that uh, isn't all bad, because most downbeat stories uh, that I've seen on the screen are just downbeat from the start of the picture. And it's all right to have a downbeat story, I think, if you've given them something uh, the three-fourths through. Thank you very much, Frank Bozaghi, for the opportunity to interview you here. This interview has taken place in Mr. Bozaghi's home on April 11, 1958. <laughs>